All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to episode seven of Sustainable Builders Yak podcast, the podcast that gives you the confidence to build high-performing, sustainable homes. Today's podcast is sponsored by Boutique Lawyers. We would first like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. My name is Brian Guinan from iSmart Building Group in Perth, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Simon Clark from Sustainable Homes Melbourne. Howdy, Brian. Good, Simon. How are you, mate? Going well, going Welcome well. Welcome back, mate. Welcome back. Now, as I said, today's podcast is sponsored by Boutique Lawyers. Um, Boutique Lawyers are based out of Melbourne and can be reached on 1-300-556-140 or at www.boutiquelawyers.com.au. If you are looking for fast results with predictable outcomes, then look no further. Um, today's sponsor has also donated 10 hard copies of their book, which is How to Prosper as a Property Developer. Um, I'd like to introduce our guest today, who is Olivia Terzyowski, who is the author of this book. Hi, how are you? Thank you for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Olivia has been good enough to donate 10 books, as I mentioned. Uh, first 10 people to get onto the website and send in an inquiry to Olivia will get those books, and they are a fantastic read. So I'd advise you, get on the internet while you're listening, quickly. Now, a little bit of um, history. Olivia has dealt with thousands of building and construction matters and building and construction insurance claims, both domestic building insurance, plumbing insurance claims, and contract work insurance claims for over a decade. Olivia not only considers the legal aspects of her cases, but carefully and strategically manages cases based on the desired outcome, human behavior, and the most important commercial reality of the matter. Winning to her means, obtaining an outcome or award that her clients are seeking rather than winning an order on paper for a lawyer's victory. Now, Olivia, if you do your research on, on Olivia, you will all see she's an absolute powerhouse in the industry. Um, as a previous podcast, this one is devoted to one of the hottest topics in the construction industry at the moment. And today, I have to say, it is on everybody's lips at the moment. We're going to discuss construction contracts and liabilities in the construction industry. Now, in saying that, we approach this with caution. And we say, please, please, please note that everything on this podcast today is for information purposes only and cannot and should not be used as legal advice. Okay. Good disclaimer there, Brian. Yeah. Um, I'm, <laughs> when it comes to this kind of stuff, I sit sideways on the chair. I'm a little yes. bit nervous. I've, I've, had some, I've had some personal experiences in the past, um, all of which ended well, but yeah, it's not, not a good experience, to be honest. But I'm sure if you have Olivia on your side, you wouldn't have an issue. So, Olivia, if we can start off with a little chat about your past and why you chose to become a lawyer and how you ended up in construction litigation. Oh, well, I, I chose to study law because I was told I couldn't do it. So I wanted to <laughs> wow. prove everyone wrong. <laughs> Good on you. Uh, That's a good start. Yes. Uh, then I uh, originally I was a, um, a corporate lawyer, mergers and acquisitions, and I ran into my own building dispute, my first house, and had no idea about building matters. I found it interesting because um, really it's the only area of law where you you sue someone and everyone is insured or is meant or is required to have insurance contract works mm. insurance, mm. Um, statutory warranty insurance and what have you. Um, and I realised that a lot of builders and owners really don't know what contracts can do for them or what they mean. Um, and they're highly regulated contracts, these domestic building contracts, um, and you need to comply with the law. And there are rights and obligations that each party needs to comply with. And no one knows about it, not um, 
you know, you're running a business as a builder and they really don't know how to use utilise these contracts to protect themselves and, and same goes with owners. Mm. Yeah. So uh, personally, I, I would attest to that. Um, mm. A lot of larger builders would have, you know, somebody that's very knowledgeable in contract admin, but most smaller companies, like your director is your admin, your contract admin, your client liaison, your sales officer, many, many hats they wear. Um, but uh, I guess my next question would be, in your experience, and, and this is going to be a very broad question because we're dealing with all of Australia here and the amount of people that listen to the podcast generally are professionals and builders in the industry. But in your experience, what are the main contracts being utilised in the residential construction industry at the moment? Well, in Victoria, it's predominantly HIA or MBAB standard contracts. So okay. fixed price yep. or cost plus, um, and then it just uh, amended to renovations or extension contracts or new builds yeah so it's kind of the same in western australia as well yes it's him mba the larger builders have their own they would draw up their own contracts but the boilerplate is the same it would be the same as hia um so further to that then um we're going to try and delve in a little bit not too much um i i know that when we started this uh, process first we went into uh, our terms and conditions quite a bit and we did hire an external entity a, a lawyer to draft up terms and conditions can can you speak to that for us please and the importance of that because yeah, you, you would see that firsthand yeah exactly a lot of builders uh, are just using the same contracts without amending the conditions within or in the special conditions and the ones that do amend um so the the way that these contracts work are that the um, special conditions override the terms of the contract, the terms of the contract override the specifications, the specifications override the plans, the plans are then basically the last level of importance or override mm. the terms. That's very um, interesting. It yeah. is. It is. Um, I, don't, I don't think a lot of builders would know that. No. <laughs> and um, one of the, the biggest um, mistakes that builders do make is they put in whatever special condition they think if they do if they have amended it they think would um, assist their build however they're not enforceable and they're non-compliant some of the an example is cost escalation clauses that aren't compliant with the domestic building contracts act so you can't just put in a clause saying hey we're going to charge you 250 dollars for each variation for admin and um, if if we need to change the the slab from waffle to board piers, we're going to charge you extra for that too. We haven't taken into account the engineering or soil report. There are obligations under the Act requiring the builder to undertake due diligence and they need to take into consideration the foundations data. They need to make sure that they've, you know, done their, done their homework taken the soil test and if it's the, the test is whether or not it's reasonable for the builder to have foreseen that you know a waffle slab or a board pier slab was required rather than what was supplied or even if they've just used the cookie cutter run-of-the-mill type you know waffle slab for the volume builders that they use all the time and then they try and amend it or charge an extra 15 grand for the board piers it's illegal to do that under the domestic building contracts act but that would mm. be based on, like, um, we're getting into, we're going to get in <laughs> too deep into this now. But it, it, it's basically, you know, accepting that prior knowledge is available. 
or under prior understanding is available. So right. if, if you have experience and you know that there's a possibility that can happen, then you just have to prove due diligence. On, on that there, Brian, Olivia, is it accepting that prior knowledge was available or is it just going through that process of due diligence as a builder in uh, making the best effort to obtain that knowledge, whether it's available or not? Um, I don't know, Matt. Oh, look, in, in the case that we're talking about at the moment, like a soil type is one thing. So if you have a certain yeah, class yeah, of soil yeah. type, yeah, like you're going to have to do, do due diligence. And even if you have a contract, if you like, that's one of the, my next questions was based on, on provisional sum amounts. We yeah. can get, yeah, we can get really deep into this, but we're only looking at one section at the moment, whereas you know, if you put in a PSM that's not realistic, then you're not doing due diligence, are you? Really? No, yeah. definitely not. No. Yeah, and the restriction, yeah, the restrictions only apply to foundations data and the reasonable, reasonably foreseeable test. Yeah. So if you didn't yes. take the soil test and you know you've just quoted up on a waffle slab, for instance, and, and I know this is a sustainable um builders podcast, so Please excuse me. Waffle slab is not sustainable. But um, if you've quoted up on that, um, and and you didn't take your soil test, and it was available to you, or you just didn't take it, and then you've amended it to a board peers, for instance, then you haven't done your due diligence. It, it's reasonably foreseeable that it would have been, you know, a board peer slab had you taken the soil test. So that, those extra costs you cannot claim, and most owners don't know this anyway, and a lot of builders do it anyway, um, yeah. but. If you if you get into trouble with the owner, that's one thing that could send you into liquidation later. You know, yeah. making claims or getting sued for and having to pay back. Yeah, that's what I was afraid about with this podcast. It's, it's, it's going to get so deep because there's so many instances where yeah. somebody can get caught, and the understanding is I'm not sure if it's there or if it's ignored or or what it is, but it is definitely something that that needs to be brought to the fore. I think. And um, we'll try and keep moving because we have, there's so much to try and get through today, but that's a huge concern. And maybe Olivia, we will get you back because we spoke previously, we would need three or four hours to go through everything in, in, in detail. So we're just going to glance over as much as we can to just bring awareness, I guess, to the audience. Um, I'll skip over the next question. And I'll go straight to the PS amounts. So because we were talking about that previously, um, I want to discuss provisional sums how they work and what the responsibilities for each party are uh, with regards to risks, I guess. Okay. So in your experience, when they come up in litigation, what happens? So I'll, if you, if you don't mind, I'll mention prime costs as well as provisional sums. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. And I'll explain to you what the difference is. And then I, I know with the timber issue as well, I'll explain how that, that prime costs can help you. So provisional sums are, you know, uh, rock removal and you've allowed $5,000 for rock to be removed and, you know, you you spend $2,000 on rock removal and then you, you'd have to credit the owner or the developer the difference, the $3,000 difference. Yeah. Um, the provisional sums include the work and the labour and it's included in the fixed price contract and it's yep. something that you don't know whether or not you you need it or it's needed or required or if it's going to cost more because you can't assess what's required. So even with renovations, for instance, yeah. you can put in a provisional sum for, you know, rewiring the electricity or plumbing 
because you can't see what latent defects underneath and you can allow yeah. it. Yeah, and, and the, the reason, one of the reasons why builders would use a provisional sum in a renovation like that is because there's a 15, a 15% cap on um, after a 15% variation on increase of the con- contract price, the owner can elect to terminate the contract if the variation's higher than that. So it's it's a way of protecting the builder as well, um, yep. just increase mm-hmm. the contract price there. With prime cost items, um, even though they're very similar, they're used more for materials and allowances. So taps, for instance, you've allowed $20 a tap, you know you need 10 taps, and then you go, you, you, you order the tap and they're $25. That doesn't include um, labour and builder's margin. Yeah, it's material only. Tiles yeah. is usually a very, um, an item which is almost always a prime cost. Yes. And you could use this for timber as well. So Really? You know, yes. Um, I, I don't see why you cannot. Um, if you know that you need, you know, 50 metres of timber and you've allowed you know, $50 a, a stick or whatever it costs these days um, and the, the cost increases, um, I don't see why you can't use it for timber. So the proviso to that would be, obviously, it's a two-party contract, so it's the owner or developer agreement upon that. Correct. And, and, and one way of dealing with it is the best way to protect yourself as a builder is making sure that the other party is aware of their rights and obligations as well that mm-hmm. it's clear clear to each party what what they're getting and what the extra costs would be and i would then add in a special condition basically saying listen this is this is a prime cost uh this is a situation with the timber these days and there if there is more than a three percent increase to that figure because uh, under three percent you don't need to comply with the act with um the regime to to issue variations um under three percent of con that's the full the contract, contract value yes yes or the pc amount uh well it, a variation in general anything under three percent you don't need to comply with the the con the um regime yeah but it but it's three percent of the total contract value total just contract. not 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 just that ps or pc that's correct yes oh really yeah, yes. that's that's one that I I didn't know till recently. So full disclosure, Olivia and the team at Boutique Lawyers have recently uh, done our special conditions, and yeah, I wasn't aware of that one, and and until very recently, and yeah, I'd say a lot, an awful lot of builders wouldn't be. Yeah, I'm going to put my hand up right there and say no, I was not aware of that. So mm-hmm. I I thought the 15 percent on the PS sum was on the PS sum only, not on the contract amount. No, so 15% is on the contract amount, 3% is on the contract amount. Um, to, to make sure that each of the parties know that they're up for extra costs, what have you, I would still protect myself with, with following the regime for variations in any event. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, you know, contract over 3 million, you're issuing or a mil, you're issuing a variation for 3% is quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Mm. With provisional sums anyway, you do have to produce um, invoices. Yeah, you have to produce proof, yeah, and we always do, yeah. And there's, like, provisional sum, to be honest, I don't, I never really have an issue with it. If you're honest up front, then you never have anything to worry about, unless you hit a latent condition, which is completely unforeseen. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, recently we had that, but, yeah. 
yeah, Brian, I, I do. I love the the provisional sums, basically. I mean, and as a client, I see it as provisional. A provisional sum is basically it reflects a true cost. At the end of the day, the works that are executed will be the actual true cost of the works. Yeah, I mean, because in other, I mean, if not, the builder would have to potentially put a massive potentially con- contingency on top of it. Yeah. And um, then and then you'd obviously hope that it comes in well, well under. So then the builders won. Whereas in this yeah. case with provisional sums, it's a true cost and everyone yeah. wins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's we get it quartered, we put the court in there and the contract's very clear on your markup. And yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd I'd just like to touch on if I can. Um we mentioned HIA and MBA. And one of the contracts that's popped up a few times now for us is the ABIC contract. Are you familiar with the ABIC, Olivia? Yes, yes. It's an architect-administered contract. Yeah, so that's the Architects Institute and Master Builders together have have brought this contract up. Um, and there are a few differences in that. And there's a lot of like differences and areas with hold points, etc., that the builder needs to be very, very aware of. Um, in particular, it doesn't favor PS sums. It prefers to put it in lump sum and in, in my experience, sorry, um, it prefers to put in lump sum and then list latent conditions rather yes. than have it as a PS sum. Um, not sure I'm overly comfortable with it, but again, if you're doing the right thing, the contract is there to protect the architect, the client, and the builder. But it's a much more detailed con- contract. Mm-hmm. Much more detailed contract. Personally, I don't like them. The three's a crowd, I say. The more people involved, the more issues you have. No one's, you know, you, you, you have an argument over this. And and no one, I, I it's it may be because I, I usually get involved when there's issues, but with an ABIC contract, um, I'm shocked at how, you know, an architect administers the contract, well, with the ones that I've been involved with, and the contract doesn't comply with Section 40 under the Act and there's no rights waived. So what that means is you still have to identify each, sta- each stage um, for each payment claim. Yeah. You can't treat it like a cost plus contract. Um, you know, you've, you finish the kitchen or part of the kitchen and a ca- payment claim's made. The architect assesses that, looks at the design. They're not there to assess defects. It's just design and the looks. Um, and mm. Yeah, all the cost really. Um, they're not qualified quantity surveyors, and they approve it or reject it, or what have you. Um, a lot, most of the time, they're, they're either mates with the builder or the owner or the developer, and what have you. And it just causes, you know, they have to um, disclose that relationship as well um, in yeah. case of conflict. And most of the time, there are issues. And you know, um, section forty under the act not being complied with with each stage. Um, the architect approving the claim or not approving the claim, that there's delays and that whose fault is it. So I, I see more problems with them. Um, I would prefer if you're going to go down that road where there's, you know, costs assessed um, and you're looking at each of the claims, keep it to a cost plus contract. Yeah, sort of, yeah. I, I would agree. <laughs> uh, 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 Olivia, so we get a lot of architects listening to this also. And what, what how liable... Or is the is the architect in those contracts? Um, Are they well, all? Or? This, yes. Yeah, so that they're they're obligated to assess 
the payment claim, um, ensure that, you know, it's built in accordance with the design and specifications, what have you, and then approve it or reject it. Um, Same with the variations. Um, Like I said, I usually get involved when there are issues and not every architect doesn't know how to administer these contracts. Most of them do, but the ones that whenever I've gotten involved, the architect, you know, when they do assess um, uh, the payment claim or even during at the end of the contract assessing delays, liquidated damages, um, mm. completion and all that, there's a high liability on them because they're, they're basically administering the contract and making sure that the, the builder's complying. It's contract management um, and also, mm. you know, they, they're, they're wearing two hats. They're wearing the hat of a lawyer and the hat of a not just an architect but a building consultant. Mm. So if if they approved the say the, uh, the progress stage of a you know a kitchen installation for argument's sake, and and then that was later found to be defective, are they as liable for the builder in that case? Oh, the question is whether or not they were negligent and right. their scope of or duty of care. So um, if if it's a, you know, um, a design issue and it's – or it wasn't even installed, for instance. Yeah. The or it wasn't even inspected, perhaps. Inspe- yeah, yeah. Just ticked off yeah, by the architect. My two, my two cents on that is I, I've done projects with Abbott contracts and I've recently refused an Abbott contract. Now, the only reason I refused it was because the, the documentation wasn't complete. For me, that's where you get caught. If you're signing an ABIC contract and all your documentation is correct and you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing before you start and before you go to site and all your documentation is done, then an ABIC contract, in my opinion, is okay because the builder's protected. If the architect knows what they're doing, which most architects do, they're, they're very smart and they know what they're doing and they design beautiful homes and it's up to us to build them. In that sense, I don't see any issue with the ABIC contract. But if you do not have your paperwork boilerplate, like if, if you do not have it watertight, my advice would be do not go on an Abbott contract and go on a cost plus. That would be my advice. That the, the paperwork needs to be watertight. Yeah, cost, cost plus opens up another can of worms. It <laughs> does, but at least everyone approaches it with a different mindset. Okay. You know, you're almost like if you're on cost plus, you're not on a DNC contract, but you're not far off it. People are open to negotiation and people are open a lot more to what the costs are and you can, there's room to move. With an ABIC, there's no room to move. And my opinion is my opinion. And people have different opinions about what can and isn't in a contract, if you know what I mean. Like a contract is not always black and white. Like Olivia, it's black and white for you because you understand (laughs) it. But when you have three parties involved, I think you're right, Olivia, three is a crowd. But again, I'll say it again. I don't have a problem with an ABIC contract if it's documented and and, um, administered properly. And and agreed. And that, that's for every contract. That goes back to the understanding of each party, what they're getting, what their rights and liabilities are and what their obligations are. And that also goes for, for ABIC contracts. And one of the biggest issues are the, the parties not understanding that or what the scope of works are, what's included, excluded, and it's it's never black or white. There's always something that, you know, nothing's ever airtime. There's always something that will come up with, you know, I'll give an example um, the scope of works in one contract that I was involved in um, or trying to assist 
to clarify this issue. In um, in the special conditions in the contract, the scope of works only included what was within the parameters of the property, but it also, in the specifications, it included a crossover and works that were outside the parameters of the property. Yeah. So what was included or excluded or what was the scope of works then within the contract and how do you interpret that? So yeah. that's... That's issues that comes like back that. to documentation, yeah. though. If if there exactly. is if, if there's a contract quotation that accompanies that documentation, which is a scope of works and a project addendum, that shouldn't come. That should not be an issue because exactly. the scope of works is dictated. And exactly. I will not sign a contract without a contract quotation and a full addendum signed by all parties, including a set of drawings. Again, it comes back to your documentation. If your documentation yeah. is right, the project everything gets a little bit easier. Yeah. I, I I always say to my clients, before, don't even call me before um, you, you call um, or you engage a lawyer once your contract, you, you have to imagine the contractual documents as if those documents are a completed dwelling or, you know, extension or it, it, it has all the details in it as if the house or the, the development has been completed. You've got to imagine that with your documents, make sure all the details are in. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, you know, sign bef- not even planning approval. So yeah, that's I what completely agree. Is. Yeah, so it's built comes- on paper first before, and then it gets signed, and then it gets executed in the real world. Yes. That-, that even comes down to your paperwork that, like, you've got a contract with your client or your architect, whoever you have, but your contract is then incumbent on your your system in-house, your systems and processes in-house. So, so your quotations that you send out or your request for quotations needs to have the ter- terms and conditions on them. When you receive those quotations and you're issuing purchase orders, your terms and conditions need to comply and they all need to marry up to one another. So you have, you've got a watertight system. So no matter what happens, if somebody walks into your office and asks for something, you can click a button and there it is. And everything is covered under the same. In my opinion, that's, that's, the experience we've had, that's how it needs to work. Yes. And and that's the only way you can protect yourself as a builder, your, your contract. That's where the money is. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're, we're almost on 40 minutes already. My goodness. Yes. Um, we've only done three questions. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Listen, let's, let's just jump a couple because they're, they're important, but they're not as important as my next question. Um, this, I feel I, I've had personal dealings with this. Um, and I really feel it's something that when it comes to mental health in, in the industry, I think this is super, super important. And I really feel we need to talk about it. Um, so currently we're in, you know, I wouldn't say crisis mode, but we're getting pretty close in the industry to a situation where it's it's unsustainable. Um, you know, people just can't meet costs and they can't keep escalating. So as builders, our trades, our suppliers, if we're, if we're aware that, you know, prices are escalating and the industry is continuing to be unsustainable if you're sitting in a chair and you're looking out in the future and you're thinking to yourself well how am i going to do this can can we or are you able olivia to go into a little bit about when we talk about insolvency can, can we talk about insolvency and what the risks are and what the liabilities are and how people should approach that um, I'll look at it for, on the side of the builder. If um, if you are trading insolvent, um, 
uh, obviously, um, and as a result, the, the timber issues, for instance, increase in price and the cost and labour and COVID and, you know, trade's not showing up, um, delaying liquidated damages and all these... So, sorry, Olivia, before you go further, and I know where you're going, can you explain how does a builder know if he's trading insolvent? Uh, tax bills um, to the ATO, uh, not being able to pay their trades within the the... the Terms, a thirty-day okay. or 20, 14 day terms. Um, They're the really Yeah. Yep. Okay. And Sorry so, for interrupting. So, just you. so insolvency can be likened, correct me if I'm wrong, to like a pyramid scheme where you you're using future jobs to pay past jobs and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Would that be yeah. right? Yeah, or you use, you're using funds from one project, and I, I don't know how builders run their projects, but one project yeah. for, the, for the other and just trying to move things along. Yes. So it's the cost increase in building is just blown out significantly, and it's really, I feel really sorry for builders because they've, some of them are stuck with the contracts that, and that, that's their profit margin, the 30% increase now with building, and yeah. they're stuck you know fixed price contracts is stuck with with that price and you, mm. you know mo- most owners you can have a chat to them or developers have a chat to them because they don't want to go through process again and just explain to them listen we can't afford we, we're going to go insolvent or into liquidation if we continue with your build we need to have a chat to you about you know these increased costs and how to go about it because we can't and we've got to be careful with repudiation but how are we going to build your your or extend your dwelling. Is that the process? You, you go and you speak to the clients and you be honest with them and you say, look, this is where we're at. Is that the process in your opinion? I, I would. I would do it. I've been speaking. Once you've signed the contract for that price, you can't change it. Um, yeah. And you haven't allowed, and you know, um, for the increases, and you, you can't anyway because there's costs. Prohibitions on cost escalation clauses, so you can't just increase it because the timber's increased because it was fixed price. So, mm. I, I've just told my builders speak to the owner, um, say it's happening all, all over, you know, in the industry, and we can't, you know, and you, you'll have a with, without prejudice conversation, so it can't be used against you. It's a breach of the, it's repudiation under common law if you're not ready, willing, or able to comply with the terms of the contract. So you'd have to have it without prejudice. Um, mm. and have a chat to the owner and say this is the situation. Because e- even if they do sack you or you don't proceed with the build or, you know, you're having issues, they're going to have to sign up with another builder. It will take them a year or two before they do that finance mm. again and it's still going to cost them 30% more. Yeah. So the, re- the reason I bring this up, I- I've had a personal experience in the past and then as I was reading, um, we know that insolvencies as per like the ATO have, I wouldn't say record debt at the moment, but they've, they've quite high debt. It's up 14%, the ATO debt. And that's always a sign that businesses are under strain. Like, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that insolvencies are up 5% on last year. So from previous year to this year, it's up 5%. The more alarming part of that is that insolvencies in construction are up. So one report from ASIC is 40%, but there's reasons that that's skewed. The the real number is more like twenty eight to thirty percent. That's that's it's very huge. alarming. That's very yeah. alarming. Yeah. To see yeah. that insolvencies are going up so high. So to to circle back, my own experience in a previous life I had a company and it was a stage where 
I was unsure whether I was trading insolvent or not. So it was basically, I was paying my trades, but then they slipped back from 30 days to 45 days, 40 days, that kind of thing. So personally, I made the choice to call in an administrator for a review. So they reviewed the company, they reviewed what we were doing and how we were doing it. And their um, initial advice was, no, you're not trading insolvent, you're you are on the door of it. You need to watch this very carefully. And if that next project doesn't come in, you need to go into VA. So what's your thought process on that? Would you advise people to get an external auditor in to have a look? Or what's your advice on it, Olivia? Definitely, because it's it's domino effect. Um, if you if you wind up as a builder voluntarily or not, um, that will trigger a um the developer, the owners, or whoever um, who um, is in possession of the property for domestic building yeah. um, dwellings to to make a claim on their on the domestic building insurance policy, and most builders have signed personal guarantees on that. I would definitely get some advice um, before before um, if if the writing's on the wall to protect yourself and your assets. I, I yeah. would have gotten that advice before I um, even you know. Um, incorporated a company building company yeah one thing (laughs) sorry olivia yeah on that obviously yeah building cash flow as a builder is always yeah i mean it's a a challenge no doubt and what one advice we took on board was to engage a really good accountant and just and to work on cash flow and projections and, and all the rest and i think builders just have to obsess over numbers and course that's not going to help for you know you can't predict these you know price rises that we've seen that was you know that cannot be predicted but the stronger your business is and the more you know about your numbers the better position you'll be in for the long term because this isn't a game to mess around with no for for me my cfp my cash flow projection is weekly I have a finance meeting mm-hmm. weekly and I do cash flow projection weekly. And on a weekly basis, we're planning, we have a six month plan and then we have a 12 month plan and a five year plan. Obviously, everybody should have that, in my opinion. But if you're going to run your business, regardless of whether it's a construction business or you're selling tires or whatever you're doing, mm-hmm. if you don't have a cash flow plan, failing to plan is planning to fail. It's that mm-hmm. simple for me. Uh, uh, can I circle back, Olivia, when you were talking about the indemnity insurance? There's a little red flag that popped up in my head because I've had experience with this as well. Now, not personally. I, I've done insurance work in the past um, where a builder would fall over and then we were hired by the indemnity insurance to go in and, and finish that project. Um, one of the things that a lot of small builders, um, now in Western Australia, I'm going to speak for Western Australia only at the moment because we only have one carrier for home indemnity insurance in Western Australia, and that's QBE. And to the best of my knowledge, and what I've been told is QBE is underwritten by the government and anybody that takes out um, insurance under $10 million, above $10 million is slightly different. But if you're under that 10 million bracket, you have to indemnify that indemnity insurance personally. So you have to personally sign an indemnity form for your home indemnity insurance, which means that no matter what happens, if you're found to be negligible in any way, shape or form, if you go bust. They will take everything. Essentially, mm-hmm. that's what that means. Now, for me, that was a huge red flag, an absolutely huge red flag for me. And a lot of people, I don't know whether they realize that. And Olivia, I'd love to get your two cents on that. Is that the case in 
Victoria, New South Wales, or have you any any? Yeah, yeah, mo- most of it that we've had, we've got VMIA um, uh, that's owned by the government, and then there's uh, Asset Insure. That's and this is a domestic building insurance policy that runs with the land mm. or with the, with the property to build. So yeah. um, yes, that that's usually the case with in Victoria as well, and um, some some of the time what happens is that the builder will offer to. You know, if they claim it, usually they claim um, difference in cost to complete and defects mm-hmm. or incomplete items. Um, sometimes a builder will come back if they're still, if, um, if they're in another company or they know someone, come back and offer to fix it rather than pay out once the, de- the insurer um, tries to recover their fees from the builder after uh-huh. a um, But the owner or the developer doesn't have to accept um, or that offer, they don't have to contract with that builder or someone they refer to. Um, they can um, uh, choose to, you know, receive the payout and engage whoever they want. Yeah, and I'd like to touch on this. Maybe Simon, you can back me up on this. So mm-hmm. when when we get take out a home indemnity policy, and I am happy for anybody in the audience to correct me on this. This is my understanding at the moment. I, I may be incorrect. So when we take out a home indemnity policy. That policy, the purpose of that policy is only to assist in the event of the builder going bust or proving negligence, and that builder is no longer either in contract or they're insolvent. The the insurance is only there to assist with the process of engaging a new builder. Am I correct in that? Uh, no. So the the insurance, well, in Victoria, um, the the trigger for the domestic building insurance um, uh, policy to claim under it is the, like you said, uh, the the builder's gone into insolvency or a VCAT order um, requiring the builder to pay and he doesn't or she doesn't comply with it. So that's the trigger and it it covers the owner um, for difference in cost to complete with another builder, um, any incomplete items paid to a stage, but that's arguable. Um, it's capped at twenty percent of the contract price for t- difference in cost to complete. Yeah. Um, if the owners paid a deposit and the builder hasn't proceeded with the builder, they can claim the deposit back. And then, of course, there's defects, and it's got to be building defects. Um, most builders don't know that that their contract works insurance policy doesn't cover them for defects claims, so they think, "Oh, my insurer will pay in that." No, um, they do cover um, the builder for you know con. con- contractor's defects for instance um or damage so broken pipes under a slab for instance caused while the concrete was poured they can they can claim for that to fix those those pipes those broken pipes um they can claim for you know something that wasn't foreseeable there there, there's a lot more you can claim under your your contract works insurance policy that most builders are aware of but you can't claim for defects building defects Okay. Hey, Olivia, on that builder's indemnity insurance, as I understand it, potentially it's in Victoria, there's only ever been one claim that's been approved. In every other case, as I understand it, the, the builder or something along those lines has had to accommodate or the owner, perhaps. Would that be right? No. Um, so the indemnity insurance is different to the Domestic building insurance. So, sorry, I'm t- sorry. I'm talking about domestic building warranty insurance. Yeah. Oh no, they they um, um, claims are made every day that that VMIA or 
asset insurer and um, and so I think what you're asking is whether the builders actually had to pay out to the insurer when they've paid out the owner under a claim. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I'm not aware of that. I know that um, um, I, they do go after owner builders as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they have a builder has paid, more than one builder has pay out, paid out, but I'm not sure if it's. No, so, sorry, the, the other way around, that the insurer has only ever paid out once. Oh, no, no. There's only ever been one case, but no, the insurer is. No, there's thousands of, you know, uh, Tondo homes when it went under or what was Ah. the other. Yeah, they they pay out. They're required. It's a statutory warranty policy that they have to comply with the law and pay out for these items. They cannot reject. So if it's triggered, you're the owner, you've suffered the loss, and there's no restriction on when you can make the claim as long you just have to prove that the loss occurred during the insured period within Mm -hmm. the six-year policy and this also goes for plumbers their plumbers have statutory warranty insurance only in victoria so apologies for that but they're required the the developer the owner anyone that suffered a loss as a result plumbing defects or non-compliant plumbing work resultant damage all that can make a, a claim directly on the plumber's insurance. Um, mm-hmm. And even the builder can if the, the owner's claiming against them. Right. And not, not electricians? Or- electricians as well, yes. Yes. Yeah, um, so they- licensed trades, is, is, is that one? Yeah, licensed trades, yeah. That's correct, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit iffy when you, because apparently Painter is a licensed trade as well, but it's only because of product as far as I know. But let's not get into that. We are fast running out of time here. Um, Olivia, I have one last question for you, and then we'll get into quick fire questions. Um, if you could give the most influence, influential advice to our audience, and considering we have architects, engineers, builders, trades, suppliers, we, we've got a, a broad, broad audience, what, what would your advice be? I think the biggest issue you know, I'm up to maybe 5,000 cases now. Um, the biggest issue that I see... This week. <laughs> <laughs> I, need another, I need another two days in one. But um, <laughs> one of the biggest issues, assumption, never assume that's when things go wrong. I wouldn't have a job if, if we had a foresight as well. So don't, <laughs> never assume, be open and honest. If you are unsure... If, if you know you're up for something, don't cover it up and be open and honest, never assume, um, always communicate. Um, don't If you're not experienced it, or, or you don't know what you're doing, get someone who um, is experienced in that or a, a, an expert to give you that advice or assist you or don't try and fix it yourself because you'll just make it worse. Yeah. And, the short um, road is always the long way home. That's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and that I, sounds I, like an Irish tale, to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Olivia, um, sorry, I just, I just want to mention one thing. I love that you focus on is you know that human communication. So you know we could talk about, of course, tightening up our contracts and all of the rest. But there's such a great human element to all of this. We've all got to be, I mean, more open and honest communication and be good humans. Generally, when I won't say all the time, you know better than me, but I'd expect would generally win the day if you're not an a-hole. You know what I mean? (laughs) You're 100% right, Simon. 
Yes. Mm. Most people don't want an argument. Um, in my experience, if you communicate, everyone will come to a, a resolve. And if everyone has good intentions, it, it'll, it'll always resolve itself. Always. Exactly. And, wow. and you both, everyone wants the same thing. You want to finish your project and they want it finished. Yeah. Mm. Yep, so, I mean, and no one ever sued Mother Teresa. So as long as you're open <laughs> and honest and not, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> you would spontaneously combust if you sued her, man. Come yes. on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Quick fire questions. Uh, Olivia, who is the most famous person in your phone book? Senior member Suzanne Kernan um, at VCAT. All <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Is it worry? Border Holden. Holden. Yay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> passive house or passive solar design? Passive house. Yeah, good on yeah. you. Love it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Timber or brick construction? Brick. What? Ooh. Jeez. <laughs> I'm going to hang up. What the <laughs> hell? Right. Concrete. You obviously, don't, you obviously don't care about carbon, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Favorite music? I like the 80s. Oh, good. Tim Tams or Anzacs? Double dip Tim Tams. There you go. Nice. Okay, well, look, Olivia, all I can say is we would love to stay here for another two or three hours because we're just scratching the surface on this stuff. There is so much. And I know that people listening to this, I'm sitting in the chair right now, and there is probably 15 conversations going around in my head of experience that I've had and how can we do this and how can we do that? And I know that everyone's sitting in the chair listening to this going, oh, I need to talk to them about this. So get on the floor. Get a hold of Olivia. I'm mm. telling you, she is an absolute powerhouse in the industry. Mm-hmm. Olivia, thank you so much. And again, thank you to our sponsors, Boutique Lawyers. Thank you, Olivia. Thanks, yes. Brian and Simon. Appreciate um, being invited to speak today. It's been a joy. <laughs> no worries. Awesome. Thanks, Olivia. And, yeah, I just want to close with, um, yeah, prevention is better than cure in, in oh, these yeah. cases. The more we can tighten up what we do, oof, it's just – it's just such a secure feeling when you get it right. Yeah, yeah, you can sleep. You can sleep easy, yeah, and, and that sleep. is no amount of money can pay you to sleep easy. I'm telling you, it's mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're on mm-hmm. the other side of it, and you're worried about losing your house or losing your business, and and you've got kids to feed, etc. It's an it's a terrible, terrible feeling, and it really weighs on your mental health. So, yeah, to everyone out there, um, look, all I can say it's abundantly clear that with the current pressures on the economy that's putting on our industry and the extreme levels of liability we are we have as individuals licensed trades builders suppliers and professionals um we'd be extremely vigilant in our approach to contracts and what we put out put our john hancock on i guess i, I guess that's it about it from me mm-hmm. what's john hancock signature ah <laughs> geez be careful oh. what you sign ah geez i'm uh i'm a bit slow there i'm pretty sure that's an american phrase isn't it I've never heard it. Really? I thought, I thought it was a hitchhawk. <laughs> Han- no, you're John Hancock. Put your John Hancock there. You've never heard of yes. that? I no. have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a signature. Okay, again, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, Simon, thank you. Appreciate you being here. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Olivia. And thank you, thank everyone, you, for joining us. Don't forget to check out our Instabox, um, YouTube, Facebook, the whole lot. Check it all out. We've got another webinar coming up this week. I'm sure you will be intrigued. Uh, Jeremy is 
going to explain further to what we spoke of on our last po- podcast with regards to energy efficiency rating and that hers etc so we did get a heap of questions and rather than us write those questions up or go through them today jeremy's going to explain it all start to finish in our next um in our next webinar which is on next wednesday so again thank you everyone for joining us and we'll see you on the next one cheers thank Bye. you simon thank Bye. you Olivia.